Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks especially to Ed Hackey for producing this show so faithfully each week uh, without Ed, we wouldn't be able to do this, so we're especially appreciative of you, Ed, and for all the work you do on this and our other podcasts on script. So today, Mary Buck is interviewing Doug Bookman, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Mary Buck. I'm a co-host of the Biblical World Podcast, and we are joined today um, by Dr. Doug Bookman, who has been um, sort of a mentor of mine for a number of years, and I am very excited to get to meet with him today to talk about um, a really happening topic, let me tell you, um, the Urim and the Thummim. I know some of you are wondering maybe what that is. Others of you are just... uh, uh, excited to hear about it. So, uh, Dr. Bookman is on staff at Shepherd Theological Seminary in North Carolina. Um, and uh, maybe, Book- Dr. Bookman, if you could tell a little bit about your role there, about your kind of past research. Yeah, give a, give a bit of a bio. Well, thank you. And it really is a delight to, to be with you, Mary. Um, yes, I, I have been teaching since 1973. And uh, yeah, on, a, on either Bible colleges or seminaries, and and uh, and I one of my focuses in uh, educationally teaching. I I I my terminal degree, and it almost was exactly that, by the way. But <laughs> my, my doctoral degree was Dallas Seminary uh, PhD in Bible exposition, and uh, it was a curious set of circumstances that brought me to the place where. I, uh, I I wrote my dissertation on the Urim and Thummim. Uh, I'll just say real quickly that one of the well, one of the expectations for any doctoral work, and I'm not sure this is the healthiest dynamic in the world, is you have to make a contribution, which means you got to come up with something nobody ever thought of for the last two thousand years of Christian erudition. <laughs> which sometimes people get into some rather bizarre issues, but. But I had done some extensive work in my THM on the old, on the on the Urim and Thummim, and quite frankly, he said with no pretense of of, of, of humility, uh, I had discovered I was the only guy in the world who got it right. No, there was, there was a prevailing <laughs> understanding of the Urim and Thummim that I thought was just dead wrong, and uh, I had produced a pretty extensive 120-page research paper on the topic, and so now as I was thinking about what I might do my dissertation on, uh, I, I had to, uh, I was in Bible X and they didn't feel there was anybody in that department specifically qualified to read it. So they asked me to find uh, an Old Testament prof who would work with me. And a good friend of mine by that time was Dr. Gene Merrill. And he, uh, he became my number one reader and nursed me through a tremendous, tremendous help. And, uh, so that's how I got into the, the Urim and Thummim. On the other hand, I've given much of my academic and study life to the business of uh, the life of Jesus and so on. But the Urim and Thummim, I, I am a, uh, quite frankly, I am a, a Hebrew scriptures freak. I just think the Old Testament is so rich, so important. Now, that's altruistic to say. But I think it, it's really much neglected in many, many ways, especially 
in terms of how it sets the stage and provides the backdrop and even is so seminal to all that we read in the New Testament. And uh, so God's given me opportunity to spend a good time deal teaching time in the Old Testament as well. And uh, but at any rate, so that's that's sort of my background. I've been here at Shepherd Seminary since 2009, and it's been a uh, it's been a blessed assignment. I'm certainly on the uh, steep side of the back side of the hill, if you know what I'm saying. So this season of life, uh, our lines have fallen out in pleasant places, both in terms of my family. We love it here in North Carolina and my kids and grandkids. Most of them are close by. And then and then the seminary is just a delightful place to be in terms of a school that is serious about ministry preparation, that believes the Bible in all of its parts, that is totally committed to the priority of the local church and so on. So, yeah, I, uh, I uh, since 2009, I've been here. My, my official title uh, is uh, Professor of Bible Exposition. Um, and I, I think adding on, it's not relevant to the Orion Thumi maybe, but I think you just published a, a recent book as well, um, called Forsaking Israel. I thought maybe you could just give a quick introduction to that. Very good. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, our school is by, by commitment. And it actually, I think it's a sort of an unbroken, uh, necessary logical sequence that we believe the Bible in all of its parts. And we are, uh, we believe in grammatical historical interpretation that the meaning of the text is embedded by the human author under the superintending ministry of the Spirit of God is that the meaning is embedded in the text and our job is to exegete to mine that out and uh, when one does it that is to if you don't mind derive our theology from the text and not take our theology to the text but the point is that we are very, very strongly committed to a uh, premillennialism, to dispensational premillennialism. We believe that God's covenants are absolutely uh, dependable, and and therefore he's, he, he is and will continue to work with Israel for his glory and according to his purposes. And uh, much of the evangelical world, much of the thinking Christian world has, in fact, embraced, embraced a set of ideas that... Uh, that uh, I don't know if one would say presupposes or concludes, but at any rate includes the dynamic that God has abandoned his covenant relationship with Israel. And, uh, and so um, we, our, our, our longtime dean and my longtime friend, uh, longer than the time he was my dean, uh, Larry Pettigrew, we began to teach together in 1973, by the way. But uh, he, uh, whose PhD is in church history from, from under John Hanna at uh, Dallas Seminary, and so he really understands it. And he oversaw this effort on the part of the faculty to write a book called Forsaking Israel, How It Happened and Why It Matters. And he just traces the set of the, the, the development of theological ideas that uh, came to fruition with this, uh, well, this broad concept, this, this concept which is broadly described or defined as replacement theology, supersessionism. And so it is a fraternal, deliberate, historically based. Now, there's a great deal of theology, but quite frankly, if you're dealing with that set of ideas, that set of ideas is not primarily biblical. It's, it's, it was developed historically. So I'm, I would encourage people to check it out. It is called Forsaking Israel. It is a fraternal, careful, well-documented not always light, shall we say, book on how it is that so much of 21st century 
thinking Christianity has forsaken Israel, how, how it happened, and then why it matters. And there's a lot at stake. So I would um, strongly encourage people to, to check it out. That's great. Um, so, okay. So turning to the topic at hand, uh, or even the Thummim. So for, I would, I would assume most people are probably a bit familiar, right? We run into it a couple times in scripture. So, but maybe if you could tell us a little bit about, just give a quick overview. How does the Bible present the Orim and the Thummim? Uh, let's do it. First of all, I think the first question is, what is it? What is the Urim and Thummim? And as I understand it, you're much better at Hebrew than I am, but I think that's approximately how it ought to be. Uh, pronounced Urim and Thumim, but uh, the words mean lights in the plural and perfections. So it's generally taken, and I think appropriately so, as a grammatical formation called the Hendiatus, which uh, is just two ver- two nouns connected by a, uh, a conjunction and which in fact name one item. Now that's more than a little bit important, but I'll just say for now that that Urim and Thumim, I think, and and quite frankly, Mary, you'll forgive me, I I struggle with this as I was doing my dissertation because one of my readers, man of significant uh import, insisted that I had to use pronouns and so on that are in plural because you have two plural nouns connected by a uh, uh, you know, a conjunction. And and so, but I think, and I do, I think it ought to be referred to in the singular because there was one oracle. All right. So let me get to the, the Urim and Thummim was a, an oracle. Now by oracle, I mean, in this case, a physically manipulated means of consulting with the deity. So it was an oracle that was provided by God to enable the leader, the human leader of the theocracy, to consult with the divine ruler. So the Urim and Thummim was a piece of the pontificalia, or the the, uh, the, the garments of the high priest. It's uh, first introduced, the Urim and Thummim is, in Exodus 28, very, very suddenly. I'll come back to that. And uh, we're simply told that the Urim and Thummim was to be placed inside Hossein, the breastplate that the high priest wore in his, in his high priestly garment. So it was some sort of physical apparatus which was belonged to the high priest and was part of his garment and which was used in, 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 uh, in moments of national crisis or concern to actually consult with King Yahweh. Now, having said that, Mary, let me just say that one dynamic of the Old Testament narrative and the Old Testament, uh, what we have in the Old Testament, one of the most important dynamics that has got to be embraced and understood, and and again, I'm going to suggest is is altogether too often underappreciated, is the reality of what's called the theocracy. That word has taken on itself kind of bad connotations because we think of uh, tyrannical religious rulers and so on. It's a theocracy. There's never been another theocracy in human history. A theocracy by careful definition is the rule, kratos, by God, theos. And, uh, and, and, and in point of fact, I like to say that what happened at Mount Sinai most simply was that the family of Abraham, God had called Abraham 215 years earlier, and and had dealt with that family and watched the family grow. But at Mount Sinai, the family of of Abraham became the nation of Israel. And they were offered a covenant. We think of it as the Mosaic covenant, even the law. 
by which they would become the people of King Yahweh, and Yahweh would become their God, not in some spiritual, ephemeral, uh, abstract sense. He became their real king. Did I say God? I meant Yahweh would become their king. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, it's fascinating that after they accept that covenant relationship, Exodus 19, the first thing God does is Exodus 19 to 24. It's actually ratified. The blood is sprinkled in chapter 24. But God immediately calls Moses up into the mountain. He spends a total of 80 days there. And basically what God does with Moses is give him the instructions as to how to build a throne room for their new king, Yahweh, because that's what the tabernacle was. So he comes down, builds the throne room. In Exodus chapter 40, you have that fascinating passage where it says Moses finished the work, the work of of, of building the tabernacle throne room. And of course, by the way, that that tabernacle included a, a tent, had a courtyard, then a tent, and there was a holy place, but then it was a holy of holies. And there was only one article of furniture in that Holy of Holies, of course, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the throne of King Yahweh, that sacred significant box. I always tell people, Mary, that if we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, you're thinking about a really big boat. You need to spend more time in the Old Testament. <laughs> but, but the fact is that in Exodus 40, when Moses finished the work, the glory cloud, which is the theophonic personification of Yahweh in his kingly presence, the glory cloud lifts up from off the mountain. It's been there smoking and flame and so on, lifts up and moves in to the, this is Exodus 40, moves into the Holy of Holies. And that is Yahweh taking his throne. And then the next thing it says in Exodus chapter 40, interestingly enough, it says that when the cloud would go up, the nation would break camp and march. And when the cloud would settle down, they would make camp. So what's it saying? It's just King Yahweh is giving the marching orders. So I can spend a lot more time with it, but suffice it to say, I, I spend that time because it's so important to understand that that the, the Urim and Thummim is entirely and 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 dramatically a function of that theocratic arrangement. Because here's the dynamic that you have to bring with. Yahweh became king over Israel with a throne in Israel. He invited his subjects to approach him. There were certain sacrifices you would offer in order to do that, but uh, you could come, a uh, you know, a, 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 a childless um, woman could come, Hannah, and stand before Yahweh and make a vow, and he would respond to her and so on. So Yahweh was king in the most, and by the way, one of the ways in which his kingliness, you know, he most obviously functioned as the real king, is in leading the nation to battle. He would give them directions, usually through the Urim and Thummim. I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's my grand point. Yahweh became king in 1446. That's the biblical date of the Exodus and, and, and thus the uh, Mount Sinai experience. And But Yahweh never ruled immediately. Sometimes we call this, and I this, this I think, I, I got this Malvin McLean, it's probably older than that, but I think it's well phrased to say that what you have is a mediatorial theocracy. That is, Yahweh is ruling over his covenant people, Israel, but he does it through a mediator. And the first mediator was Moses. And then Moses was very carefully succeeded. God pointed out that Joshua is to succeed him. And interestingly enough, uh, in, in numbers, as that transition is made, Joshua is given the Urim. It's explicit. But then, of course, Joshua. What's the reference to that one? 
Just Pardon so we me? have it. What's the reference to that? Numbers 27. Here, I got it. Here, I got it. Sorry to throw you off your pattern. No, I just no, thought it was no, no, useful no, to no, have the no, no. numbers 27, 21. Great. Um, but at any rate, the uh, so then Joshua is succeeded by a series of local, but each one is handpicked by Yahweh. And then a very, very important transition happens when, at, at, you know, you've got about 350 years of the judges, total, total defeat, wickedness. And then along comes the one really quality judge, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament, the only judge who ever judged over the entire nation. Other judges were just local. And his name was Shmuel, Samuel, of course. And when Samuel, having really brought the nation back to some level of, first of all, spiritual sense and thus success, uh, when he's about to die or he's grown old, they say, make us a king. And there are people who, I think, horribly mistakenly, cripplingly mistakenly, um, assume, I assume they see this as the theocracy being abandoned for the monarchy. The theocracy was not abandoned until the glory cloud departs in 592, as described in Ezekiel 11. What you have is a different arrangement with the kings, that is, human kings. So very simply, before the human kings, Saul, David, Solomon's division of the kingdom, kings of the north, king of the south, the monarchy, before that, God handpicked every single one of those representatives, even the, even the judges. He picked them out. Now, going forward, by reason of successionism, that's the definition of a monarchy. When the king dies, one of his sons succeeds him. God's not going to be primarily involved in, in the selection, uh, and, and, and certainly providentially and so on. But as far as uh, handpicking them, that's not going to happen. Now, we'll talk more about that. But the point is, when that happened, those kings, and there's no way to read the, the chronicle of either Samuel Kings or the chronicles itself without realizing that King Yahweh expected those human kings to regard themselves simply as viceroys. They were Yahweh's representative. This, by the way, is the reason for the threefold prohibition in Deuteronomy 17. Don't multiply wives, uh, silver and gold, or uh, horses. Because you can call it gals, army. girls, and giddy up. Have you ever heard what that? Gals, girls, and giddy up. Gold, gal, ga, gold. I'm uh, sorry, uh, girl. Yeah, so gals, right. gold, right. and giddy up. That's a good way to remember. I, um, anyway, uh, I, I don't think that's an arbitrary or random list. The fact is, those are the three ways that a monarch would aggrandize himself in history. And so God is saying, no, King Yahweh is saying, you are not to aggrandize, to bring yourself greater and greater honor and fame, because you're just, and by the way, this is why David is such a great king, because he recognizes this. This is why his heart is broken when he, David, takes the city of Jebus and builds him a temple, builds himself a uh, house and realizes he's just the viceroy, he's just the assistant, and, and the real king doesn't even have a play. That's why he wants so desperately to build the temple. I think that's why he wants to bring the glory cloud home, but that's another side. So my point is, if we, if we understand that from 1446 to 592, from that period when the Urim is relevant, the uh, Yahweh is physically, really, dramatically king in Israel, but he is going to rule through some sort of a human representative slash mediator, would we not expect that King Yahweh would give, would provide for that human mediator some means to contact 
Yahweh. And that's exactly what the Urim and Thummim is. I like to say it's kind of the red telephone, you know what I'm saying, where, where the human mediator in times of moment could, could reach out and take the initiative and, and, and beg for counsel and direction and so on. And uh, so the Urim and Thummim is, it's interesting. It's now, let me just say this real quickly. It's only mentioned specifically seven times in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, I think it might be good for me to walk through those. Should I do that real quickly? Yes, only seven yes, times, yes. five of uh, four of them are in the Pentateuch, uh, that is in the Torah and uh, in Exodus to Deuteronomy. The first one is Exodus twenty-eight thirty, and it's it's really kind of fascinating. I'll I'll just read it real quickly. Exodus twenty-eight thirty. It's in the midst of this careful description. Moses is on the mountaintop. He's not eating anything for how many days? You know what I'm saying? Not going to eat for, or drink for 80 days. Uh, he's just he's just subsisting on the, on the presence of God. That presence is so awesome that he's going to come down with his face glowing. Of course, Moses is. But in the midst of that, he's been, he's, God has been describing the breastplate. Now, the breastplate, you have the ephod, and that's the longer coat, kind of knee-length vest almost. And then you have this breastplate, which went over the shoulders, and it was doubled over, and it was called the, 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 the breastplate of righteousness, or the Hossein. And he's describing this and with great detail, what kind of material, how big it's got to be, how it's to be worn. Oh, and then he describes in this passage the 12 stones. Put the 12 stones in the breastplate, blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. That's a poor way to characterize. <laughs> but the point is, you know, it's all this detail that's given about the about the uh, uh, the, the the vesture, the, the garments of the high priest. And then very suddenly, with absolutely no introduction, God says, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment, the Kosein, the Urim and Thummim, and they'll be over Aaron, Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart. All right, so w- the problem, one of our problems here, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to nail this down because we'll have to come back to it, is, what we're not told what they are and really there are probably only a couple possible explanations one is that that they existed for a long time this is the first time they're ever mentioned there's absolutely no reason to think uh that that they existed but because they're introduced so casually so uh, you know it just just seems like we should know Mm. what they are some people say, well, they were given to Adam and Eve. Some of the Jewish rabbis so on, trace all the way back to Adam. Not in the text. There's no text, whatever. They're just trying to deal with the fact that they're introduced so immediately, so suddenly, without any introduction. Um, I think the better way to understand this, and I I like to tell people, Mary, that I believe this with two or three fibers of my being, if you know what I'm saying. I, I, I don't think I can be absolutely confident. I think the best explanation, and I think it fits in a lot of other ways, is that the Urim and Thummim, was one with the 12 stones because you've just had that explanation just in this immediate passage. And so I think he is simply saying you put them on the breastplate and then you put them inside. Now, anytime you see kind of a drawing of the high priest, you see a model and so on, he'll have the 12 stones visible on his, on his breastplate. I think that's wrong. I think they were inside. 
And they remember it was doubled over and tied at the shoulders and you would loosen it. And when you wanted to consult the Urim and Thummim, you would actually open it. Ah, that's that's but because it says much of it says the same thing when he's dressing Aaron, that he does exactly that. So uh, when he's dressing him as the what he called the high priest. So the point is, I would say the first time we introduced to him very suddenly, Urim and Thummim, by the way, if they are, if it is, I'm going to stay with my singular. If the Urim and Thummim, the oracle, is in fact one with the 12 stones, the the title, Shining Light, Perfect Lights or Shining Perfection, it fits very, very well. So I, it's, it's a lot of discussion. Now, let me stop on this and say this real quickly, Mayor, that most of the ideas that you run into in the Old Testament theologies and the commentaries and so on, quite frankly, are based on the idea that the Urim and Thummim was borrowed from some Egyptian prototype. And it was discs with black and white or something like this. The fact is that uh, I, I absolutely reject this. I think this was absolutely distinct. Every ancient people had all sorts of means of uh, uh, consulting the gods and divination and so on and throwing arrows in the air and coming up with an interpretation of how they fell to the ground or taking a sacrificial animal and and tracing the lines of the liver and all this sort of stuff. But the fact is that that this is not superstition. This is objective. It is a means by which God can can be consulted. King Yahweh can be consulted. So I got I to gotta be quicker. So Exodus 28 is the, the first time we ever counted. Then in Leviticus 8, when he is dressing... One question on the Exodus, just because I'm curious. I'm looking at it here in the Hebrew, right? The verse before, um, it talks about bearing, so like upon his heart, and then it repeats it in 30. So does, is that an... Uh, I was just curious if that's another reason why you feel like, yeah, what's described in 29 is the same as 30 because it's repeated. Yeah, it's going to be on on his heart if there's a difference. Yeah, and and physically it's on his heart. The Kosein is, is on his chest. So I guess most people think... <laughs> that that it was some sort of apparatus, discs or stones or something that was actually placed inside the Hossein. One argument I use against that, though I don't claim that it's a very strong argument, but I don't know, you decide, is that it was not a pouch. It was mm-hmm. open, that wasn't sewn. So if there was anything in there, you know, you'd have to walk carefully well, to roll out, you know <laughs> what I'm saying? So I think it's better to understand that it was the 12 stones actually attached. But yeah, I think oh, it, it fits. And uh yeah. And by the way, the ancient rabbinical Talmudic understanding usually identifies, almost always identifies, and Josephus does as well, the Urim and Thummim as some sort of jewel. Now, Josephus gets it confused, and he has it up on the priest's shoulders and so on, and, and we'll come to this in a bit, but one of the argument, one, one of the explanations of how it was used was that, well, one of the, the most popular Talmudic, like it took a survey, but was that that the Urim and Thummim was the 12 stones and that the 12 stones, each one had a name of one of the tribes inscribed on it. And the way God would communicate was to preternaturally, supernaturally cause those letters to glow, to spell it out. That's how they, they see it. And they go a little further because when you go to the Old Testament and 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 figure out where you have the Urim and Thummim, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Some of the messages there aren't all 22 letters, or however you're going to frame the alphabet, you know, on in those names, and so they come up with a, another 
stone to supply the extra letters and so on. But but I I, I think there's some some nucleus of remembrance there. But all right, so I leave it alone. Secondly, in Leviticus chapter eight, you have you remember Leviticus eight is where God tells Moses to uh, you know go in and outfit. Uh, uh, Aaron, his brother, and come out, and he offers a sacrifice, and the glory cloud opens up and consumes it, and so on. But um, in uh, Leviticus eight seven, this is where he's, he's he's actually he put the breastplate on him, and again he put the urim and the thummim in the breastplate, and then put the turban on his head. Now that's all it says. Now, the second mention is just as the urim and thummim, as he's being clothed as the high priest. He does exactly as he was commanded. He puts the, the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. Now, the next one is really interesting. It's Numbers chapter 27. And uh, it is the uh, inauguration or the, yeah, it, it, Moses has been told he's going to die. Joshua's going to succeed him and so on. And uh, so in Numbers 27, let me read from verse 18. The Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom the spirit is. Lay your hand on him. Set him before Eliezer, the priest. Now, this is the high priest. And uh, now, again, let me just stop on this real quickly. I think the theocratic arrangement is really remarkably well crystallized and illustrated when the Urim was used because the, the, the human leader, uh, and it's going to be the kings usually as far as the narrative is concerned, does not go directly to God. He has to go through the priest. So the priest has the, now it doesn't have to happen at the temple. It has to happen in, in light of the temple. But but uh, so at any rate, set him before Eliezer, the priest, before all the congregation, inaugurate him, Joshua, in their sight. Give And then it says, and you shall give some of your authority to him. Now, I think the point is that Joshua is, in fact, Moses' successor, but he's never going to have Moses' authority. And one of the most important reasons is because, you see, Moses, although it's in the days of Moses that the Levitical structure is put in place, and that includes the Urim but he never uses the Urim because he speaks with God face to face. And that's what constitutes him in a unique sense. Remember Deuteronomy 18, when I speak, uh, no, I'm thinking of uh, numbers. When I When I speak, I'll speak. Uh, through a, when I speak to a prophet, I'll speak through a vision or a dream, but w- not so with Moses. Uh, yeah, with him, I speak face to face. And so Moses didn't need the Urim, interestingly enough. But and that's what I think it means, perhaps at least in part, when he says you give a measure of your authority to him in order that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. I'm back to Numbers chapter 27. Then he says he shall stand before Eliezer, the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. And thus, I'm adding that, at his, Joshua's words, they shall go out, at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel. So why is it that he is to be obeyed? Because he is Yahweh's representative, and to that, as part of that arrangement, he can actually consult with God. So he's the one who can approach King Yahweh. So why is it just Urim here and not the, the dual? I, I, the dual you know, there are various explanations. It's it's a couple of times it's only the Urim. Another time it's actually flipped. As a matter of fact, the Deuteronomy, the next one oh, is nice. Deuteronomy 33, which is a fascinating passage. But in Deuteronomy, uh, it's the Thumim and your Urim. Now that may have been, and Mary, you could speak to this much more authoritative or intelligently than I, but some of us, you know, there may have been a rhythm. This is clearly poetry, and it may have been the meter 
that was demanded and so on. I think the fact that the oracle can be referred to by just one of the terms, Urim, or by a revert, would suggest, just as I say, that it's a title for one oracle. We don't have two. There are many very, very critical uh, explanations of the Urim and Thummim that assume entirely that it's just, it's, you know, the, the comparative religions approach, and it's just another, just like the, uh, it strips it of the supernatural and so on. But but and they will say that there are two. There were two uh, uh, devices. There are two separate devices. Matter of fact, they try and taste it to some sort of a necklace that was around the, the neck of one of the Egyptian goddesses. I don't remember whom. And because it had two parts, these are the two parts. Uh, I, I will absolutely repudiate disavow all of that. But going back to it, I think it's interesting that even the singular title or the reverse title. But here in Deuteronomy, this is the last of the references in uh, in in the Pentateuch in, in Moses. But but he's blessing the the tribes, and he gives Levi the tribe of Levi. Oh, so much going on here. Remember, just real quickly, let me just say for our audience here that Levi was one of the two sons who had Levi and Simeon had done the wickedness against the Shechemites. You remember for which for which reason. Uh, Yahweh had said, when you get to the land, you're not going to have a, an inheritance. Of course, Simeon gets swallowed up by Judah. But Levi seems like that's a bit lifted a little bit by reason of their faithfulness. When uh, Moses was up on a mount and the people were worshiping the golden calf and, and Moses came down and said, you know, who's on the Lord's side? Put to death everybody who's involved here. And it was the Levites who did it. And so he says, for that reason, let your Thumim and your Urim be with your Holy One. Now, again, the, the, the terms are reversed, um, but but he says, whom you tested the Messiah when you contended at the waters of Meribah. And that's that instance that I just mentioned. So the point is that God, I'm sorry, Moses, God superintending, of course, uh, specifies Levi as the priestly office by simply affirming that they would possess the gods. Let your Thumim and your Urim. So there, it's God's instrument, and it's it's vouchsafed to the tribe of Levi. It's really significant. I mean, it, I think it, it points up the fact that whatever this apparatus is, it's really central to God's theocratic rule because he's going to, it's a special, uh, special thing here. So those are the four times. Now, interestingly enough, in none of those four times do we have any hint as we don't see it being used. We don't, you know, there's not much help to understand it. It's just kind of a kind of an abstraction at this point. The next mention of it is in 1 Samuel 28, 6. I won't go there. Many of us, many of your listeners will remember this, that Samuel, uh, he's getting ready to go, uh, Samuel, Saul, King Saul, last day of his life, last night of his life, is getting ready to go to battle against the Philistines, and he sneaks out to to see a witch. And interestingly enough, and there is a point to be made here, Samuel says there in 1 Samuel 28, 6, that the reason King Saul did the wickedness and sought out the witch was because the Lord would not speak to him by dreams, Urim, or prophets. So what you have there are the three means by which God evidently revealed himself. Uh, and, and, And Urim is one with dreams and prophets. So it's an authoritative voice from God. But the other dynamic that I I think is really important and and, and jumps off the page there is how much the human king depended upon the direction of the divine king. And Saul just couldn't imagine going to battle without any word from Yahweh. And, uh, And so he seeks out the witch. 
Now, the only other two mentions of Urim explicitly in the Old Testament, uh, they're in Ezra 2, verse 63, and Nehemiah 7, verse 65. In both cases, again, there is much to learn here, though it's sort of by inference. In both cases, you have somebody, some family, who in the restoration community, first of all under Ezra and later under Nehemiah, in the restoration community, insists they are of Levitical descent and therefore ought to eat the tithes of the people. And they get all, all the records and they look and they can't settle it. And they say, well, we're not going to be able to say until somebody stands up with the Urim and the Thumi. So clearly it's gone. They realize that 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 because after 592, this is the restoration community in 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 back in Israel after Babylon for 70 years. And uh, and, and, and King Yahweh's gone. He's not on the throne anymore. And so there is no Urim and Thumi. But but even then, they remember it as a means of this is the sort of thing which if the Urim were available, you could go to God and consult, it seems. All right. So I'm going to let me just one other thing. Uh, I got a lot more. but So I'm saying that the Urim and Thummim are only mentioned seven times. They're not never in a descriptive passage. So how can we recover anything about the Urim and Thummim? All right. This is important. It's not mine. It's pretty standard. But there are two syntactical or keys or narrative keys, which are almost universally. I, you know what? I, I, I never found anybody to take umbrage with this. Uh, that that are I, I would say universally accepted as indicative of the urim, and they are number one the verb shaul to inquire with the beta preposition and then and then the name of God either either Elohim or Yahweh, and secondly and sometimes you have both of them but not very often any reference to deliberate oracular activity which involves the priestly garments, usually the ephod. So when Saul says, you remember, fetch the ephod in 1 Samuel 14, and then you have clearly what is a, an oracular uh, narrative. In other words, he's, he's using that physically manipulatable object to inquire of God. And it works, by the way. Well, it doesn't work, and that's, that's the instruction. God won't talk to him. But So when you do that, you go through the biblical narrative, and it's, it's not, I mean, there are passages where you wonder. But I was able to identify, I think, about 30, 32, I think, passages. And some of those, by reason of this or that factor that seemed to maybe make it a little bit questionable, I, I, can't, I got it down to about in the 20s. I, I can't remember exactly. Then you go through, and in each of those cases, it's very descriptive. You see the Urim and Thummim at work, and you're able to get a very good idea of of at least the essence of, of what it provided, how it was used, how it helped, and so on. That's the substance of anybody's answer as to how the Urim and, what the Urim and Thummim was, is those narrative passages where we can be really confident that, because he says, when you inquire in, 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 you know, in, in putting the Urim and Thummim on Joshua, so that he may inquire. And now you have that... Uh, uh, that verb, along with uh, the, the inquire of Elohim of Yahweh, and then and then the uh, reference the priestly garments and so on, and so I, I I don't know of anybody who really questions that that is. Now there's one other thing I got to talk about here, and and quite frankly, 
this was the substance of my dissertation. And that is when I said earlier that as I did my work on Urmantumi in, in, in my THM work, I discovered that almost everybody, matter of fact, everybody, and this is what I kind of qualified it for a dissertation topic. I couldn't find anybody who didn't identify the Urmintumim with what's called the sacred lot. Now, there is a different oracle. This is the substance of my dissertation. There is a different oracle. It's also a means by which God could be consulted. It's very common in the Old Testament. It's called the sacred lot. It's what... Uh, Proverbs 16.33, or 6.33, I think it is, uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. But remember Achan, after it was discovered there was sin in the camp, they brought the tribe, and one tribe was taken. They brought the clans, one clan was taken. They brought the families, and finally fell. This is how Saul was selected. They brought the houses of, uh, you know, and fell on Benjamin, and then on the house of Kish. And now here, people got to stay with me here. This gets a little heavy, but the sacred lot is clearly what is called a binary lot. That is, it doesn't speak, it doesn't spell out words. It simply chooses between stated alternatives. So I go back to Achan. If you know there's sin in the camp, you don't know who it is, you call 12 tribes. It's probably, given Proverbs 6, it's probably stones in a bag. And, 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 and if, if, if you're going to choose one out of 12, you put stones in there, 12 stones. One of them is a different color or is marked or whatever. Everybody reaches in, blindly pulls one out. The one who pulls out that stone, which is, and there could be different ways. It's drawing straws. But the one who pulls out the marked stone, there are two phrases that are used in the Old Testament. Either the lot fell on him or he was taken by the lot. All right, but now you got it down to the tribe. You got all these clans. So you bring the clans. Maybe there are 20 of them, 20 stones, draw it out. All right, now the families. So it was binary. And the best, most obvious illustration is the scapegoat. Remember, the, the lots were cast uh, to see which of the goats would die and which would be set loose. And so it's binary in the sense that it only chooses between stated alternatives. Now, the big issue and the issue that I set out to set the world right about. How do you like that? <laughs> Was, is the Urimanthumim a binary lot? And it's not. It's distinct. It speaks propositionally. Now, how that happens, we can talk about it in a minute. But what I did is I took those, I don't remember how many I came to, narrative passages, and simply laid them out and asked the question. I went through each one and asked the question, could the answer, as recorded in the scripture, have possibly been communicated by a binary lot. And in every single instance, there was some element of the narrative which exceeded the capacity of a binary lot. Now, sometimes it was just the two questions were asked and only one was answered. Like, like uh, uh, David says, will the men of Kyla, will Saul come down and will the men of Kyla turn me over? He asked two questions. And then the answer is, they will turn you over. Well, if it was just yes and no, you wouldn't know. I mean, so sometimes it's just just sort of the dynamics of and the details of the narrative. In other cases, it's it's remarkably careful. Uh, I mean, the most dramatic is in Second Samuel chapter five, where David hears that the Philistines are attacking, and he inquires, 
And uh, will they attack? Yes, they'll attack. And then he, and then God through the Urim and Thummim says, you know, go to the Valley of Rephraim, split your forces into two, hide on both sides, and wait till you hear the sound of the, you know, the rustling of the breeze and the sycamore trees. Now, you know, you're drawing a lot of stones out of the bag before you get to that. <laughs> so, so there is nothing about the Urim and Thummim as it is recorded, which could possibly be explained by a binary lot. So my grand contribution, <laughs> I, I kind of giggle because I'll tell you a story real quickly. You know, I'm reading everything I can. I'm trying to be as exhaustive as I can. In a day, when, by, by the way, you had to, you know, go sit through those, <laughs> oh man, what was that called? A reader's guide to periodical literature. You probably don't even know what that is, but this huge tome for like three years, and you'd have to come up with keywords, you know, that might be, well, you have to look at each one, go get the article, pull it off, see if it was, there were no electronic searches going on in that day. But at any rate, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm well into my research and writing on this, and a guy from Holland gets it right. Curse his name. No, not curse his name. He was a great scholar, <laughs> and uh, he actually... I, what happened is the the you, you got to be as old as I am to appreciate this, but there was an old ISB International Standard Bible and Second. It was replaced, and in the new ISB, I went and got it, and sure enough, the article on the on the Urim and Thummim got it right. I thought, oh my god! And I got a letter from the library at Dallas within two weeks saying, start over, you know. But I tell you, I I I pointed out to him that number one, and I'm going to say this hubristically but delicately. Uh, that, that fellow, that scholar, I'm not going to call his name, but, but he, he, and he did great work and he was a great help to me, but he was wrong on about three counts and really significantly wrong. He actually traced the Urim and Thummim to the teraphim, and, and as he's, he, he was not, uh, he was insufficiently a supernaturalist. He was trying to find natural explanations for all these things but he got it right when he said that it was it was propositional it actually spoke in sentences it, the urim and thummim and the other point that i made for what it's worth and i want to come back to this is that and and they accepted this the the people at dallas uh my readers and they were they were they were they were significant guys gene gene merrill was my first reader but um i i said what i want to do is build the connection to the theocracy so i think the urim and thummim is 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 of, of, of interest and worthy of study just as an abstract reality. But the fact is that when you see its relationship to this marvelous theocratic relationship, uh, this, this theocratic arrangement that God is. So at any rate, my point is that, uh, and by the way, I'll say one other thing, because there may be some who listen who can appreciate this, but many in the academic world who don't have what I would regard as a happily high view of scripture will not pay that kind of detail. Okay, it's happened. It, you know, the, the story's being fleshed out. But I'm I'm going to take the 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 narrative as absolutely true in every detail so I can read the response recorded as having been the Urim and Thummim. That that's it. And uh, but even those who have a high view of scripture embrace the idea that it was a sacred lot. And the reason was because in the 1960s, I think, a very God-blessed, important Old Testament scholar named Leon Wood had written a uh, uh, monograph on it. And he had taken that position. And everywhere I would go, I would be sourced to Leon Wood. So uh, I think he was wrong. I think he was honorably and, and you know nobly wrong, but I think he was wrong. 
And so that was sort of what I was trying to do to, to, and, and so at any rate, I leave that alone. My point is simply this, that the Urim and Thummim is not the sacred lot. It is a very special oracular device vouchsafed by God to the theocratic, to the covenant people so that the human representative representing him could in fact consult with Yahweh. Now we have it. It wasn't the only way, by the way, it wasn't the only way God would intervene. I mean, you have that very strange ordeal of jealousy in, in, in numbers five, but clearly what's going on there is difficult. You know, we have some difficulties with that, but what's going on is I expect my law to be honored. And if, if, if human limitations make it impossible, you know, here's a way by which he would settle the issue. And so there were a number of ways that, it's so important to understand that God was not just abstractly or spiritually the king. He was the king, and he gave the law, and he expected that law to be uh, uh, obeyed. Now, it's interesting that there's every indication that the Urim was not to be consulted in 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 in, in the, the context of something which was clear in the law. You know, it had to be something that was a genuine, uh, well, a lot of times it was a crisis. So where you have it most often is in the early monarchy. Saul, and this is why it's so significant that after the, what I would regard as almost the most awful crime in the Old Testament, where Saul slew the 85 priests at Nob, you remember, because they, because uh, Ahimelech had supposedly given aid to David and so on. And young Abiathar fled with the ephod. And so now Saul was deprived of that means of communicating with Yahweh. He was still the king. Now, to be sure, 1 Samuel 15, 16, the spirit had been taken from him and given to David and so on. But nonetheless, at least titular, he was the king. But David had the Urim and Thummim. He had the ephod, and he's going to use it again and again. And uh, if you don't mind, I'm rather hogging the conversation here, if that's all right. But uh, As you should, as you should. I, and just for our listeners, just to clarify, when you talk about where it occurs in the early monarchy, you're saying the construction in the Hebrew is the verb to ask with the with the preposition bait. So it'd be like Sha'al, bait of Yahweh. And it, does it is it always uh, with Yahweh? So no, it's sometimes Elohim. Bait, Elohim. Okay, so Sha'al, bait. Adonai or Elohim in the Hebrew, and there's something like 25, 29, something cases of this. Because it is interesting, you're just talking about the fact that David had the ephod. I mean, I kind of always knew that, but I didn't make the connection of now he can Sha'al bait, <laughs> right? Um, uh, Yahweh and that, so which is interesting. So, okay, so just for our listeners, that's the that's what you're saying. Every time you see that construction, that is indicating the Urim and the Thummim are being actively used. Okay, very cool. Take take us there. I'm excited. I want to, uh, yeah, this is great. Let me take you to four passages real quickly, four, that many, that where you have that happen, and it really is instructive. I'll go quickly. I'm not going to read them, but I'll just take you to them. And I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the stories. Uh, the first one I want to go to is Judges chapter 20, and this is the horrible civil war where 11 tribes are going to war against uh, Benjamin. And what is so fascinating about this passage is, matter of fact, for heaven's sakes, I, I better read it. So Judges 20 and verse uh, 18, it says specifically, the children of Israel rose, went up to the house of God to inquire of Yahweh, Shaul, but Yahweh, uh, uh, of God, of God. 
And they said, who should go up first? And he said, Judah first. Now, again, they don't say, you know, should it be, there are 12 choices or 11 choices. He says, Judah first. Now, what's curious is they obey that command and they get slaughtered. Benjamin beats them. Mm-hmm. And then in verse 23, the children of Israel went up one, oh ben, until he, uh, no, wait, I think I left one out. Hold on here. No, 23, children of Israel went up, wept before the Lord in the evening and asked counsel of the Lord. There it is again. Shall I again draw near to battle? And he says, go up against him. And they do it again. They go up and uh, Benjamin went out and, and cut down to the ground 18,000 more. The Israelites keep I'm sorry, the 11, the coalition of 11 tribes keep losing in the battle against Benjamin, but they keep going back to the, to the Urim, because you have it in verse 26, children of Israel, uh, I, that is all the people went up and came to the house of God and wept, and they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh, and the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. And it says the Ark of the Covenant was there, shall I yet again go out to battle against the Lord? Uh, against the children of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Now listen to what the Lord says. Verse, uh, the end of verse 28, the Lord said, go up for tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hand. So this, it's really remarkable because on the one hand, the fact that they keep going back, they recognize this is not some sort of a, a nebulous, underappreciated concept. Yahweh is their king. They know it. And uh, they rebel against them in many, many cases. And so on. they rebel against his, his designated ruler. But they're in, this, is, this is a horrible time. And, uh, and at this exigency, they're willing to go to Yahweh and ask him. And, and by the way, I, I just want to say that what Benjamin had done, and the people are not familiar with it, spent a little time with judges. You know, and, you know Benjamin had done an unspeakable wickedness. And, uh, and, and consequently, uh, uh, this was a de- King Yahweh is the commander of the host, and he is sending them to war. It's interesting. This is kind of a sidelight that when the dust begins to settle on this sorry, this is the bottoming out point in many ways of the Old Testament prophecies. But there's nothing more depressing than than these eleven tribes slaughtering the twelfth. But when they realize that they're about to wipe out the 12th tribe, Benjamin, you remember they say, oh, we can't do that. We got these, what, 200 men, I think, that we got left. We got to find them wives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they do is to go across the river to a city called Jabesh Gilead and, and kill all the men of war because they didn't answer the call and take their wives and give them to these Benjamites. Well, that seems a little brutal until you realize Yahweh is king. And when he calls the nation to war, they better show up. And if they refuse to, and you can imagine how their argument might have been, these are our brothers, but God called them to war. So again, it's just startling to me, the degree to which, and then of course you have the fact that not only, they simply ask, shall I go up? And he says, yes, tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So that's clearly more than a yes and no question. All right. Um, the first Samuel 10, 22 is, is another fascinating passage. And can I ask one uh, more question? Is is Yahweh's response always and Yahweh said? Do you get not different? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Okay. Okay. It's oftentimes, I don't remember the exact statistic, but yeah, yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, it's it's clearly a response, but uh, I would say that's standard. Mm, okay. Sorry. What was the second reference? I I missed it. All right. First Samuel ten is where 
the, the nation has been promised, had been told that they're going to have a, uh, a king and, and, and uh, remember um, Samuel had told him that go home and wait. And then of course uh, he encounters young Saul out looking for his daddy's lost donkeys, you know, and says, you're the one and he can't believe it and who can blame him. And so he calls the nation together and they cast lots clearly it's it first it couldn't be more clear that matter of fact we, uh he caused all the tribes to come near the tribe of benjamin this says was chosen so what I, um verse in I'm first, in samuel, first 10. samuel 10 verse 20 20 and uh uh and then after benjamin was chosen the family of matri was chosen and then saul the son of kish was chosen now there are two very interesting things about but notice verse 22 they inquired of yahweh further now, this is a passage where quite clearly you have both oracles involved because they've been using the binary sacred lot to figure out who it was, but they can't find him because he's hiding. He's scared to death and because uh, he's the smallest tribe, smallest house, smallest. And, uh, and, and God says there he is hidden among the equipment. Now, the point is that, and, and this is curious because one of the difficulties that you have with standard explanations of the Urim and Thummim is when there is no answer forthcoming. Or in this case, how did it fall on the person who wasn't there? Well, if Saul had how many sons? I can't remember, six sons or whatever. And they put six tribe, six in, and one was unmarked, and one was marked, and the other five drew it out and didn't get it, then the one left would be Saul. And so it, the, 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 the Urim and Thummim was capable of communicating that, even though he wasn't there to draw it out. But then Clearly, you have a, a, a different level of oracular consultation when, 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 they, when they are told he's, he's hiding among the baggage. All right, real quickly, 1 Samuel 22, this is that's that one that I mentioned earlier, and it's where David has fled, and uh, uh, verse 10, uh, all I want to get out of this is that Saul, who's by now you know, just nearly insane with his anger and hatred and so on. Sin makes you stupid. And he had sinned large again against God by refusing to step aside and allow David to be king. He's trying to kill David. And uh, he hears that David had stopped at Nob there, uh, which is Mount Scopus today, the northern end of the Mount of Olives, and, and, uh, and had been assisted by the high priest. But the high priest, uh, actually in verse 10, Doeg, D-O-E-G. I always like to point out the vowel is E, not U, if you know what I'm saying. But uh, Doeg the Edomite squeals on David and, and says that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's Doeg's. It's not in the record. David got the loaf of bread, the, you know, the bread and the sword. But, but I don't think it says that he inquired, but Doeg reports that. But it's just interesting the way Ahimelech require, uh, responds because he's dumbfounded. David told him a lie. He told him he was on a mission for, for, for Saul. David was clearly Saul's most important helper, assistant, whatever. And, and, and so the, the high priest is kind of dumbfounded. And he said, what are you talking about? David is your son-in-law. He goes to your bidding. What are you talking about? I shouldn't have helped him. And then he says this, did I then begin to inquire of God for him? He seems to be saying that it was not unusual for him to inquire of God and that for one reason or another, given the relationship between Saul and David, God would allow that representative of his representative to, mm. to cons consult. But to, to, to the high priest, it's, hey, you know, this is just, 
you know, business as usual. What are you talking about that? I, you know, so I don't, all right. And then one other one that's really fascinating and, and there are a lot of them, but first Samuel 23, and I already mentioned it. So I guess I can be quick with it. It's when David is, is, is at Kyla. And, uh, first of all, God comes to him and tells him, go attack the, the, the Philistines are actually attacking. He says, go attack the Philistines. I'll give you victory. So he does. But then uh, they're they're there, and David's men are afraid. You got to understand at this point, David is fleeing from Saul, and David is perhaps thrice disadvantaged. In the first place, he's not the king; he doesn't have unlimited military power. The king does, uh, pretty weak. In the second place, uh, David's got about six hundred men in their families by him. It's not just David, you know, and a couple of buddies. He's got quite a community he has to keep safe. And the big issue is that David's not going to fight back. If he gets cornered, he's he's going to surrender, and Saul's going to kill him. So, and the men are justly afraid, and uh, so God, David inquires of the Lord, and uh, and 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 it's interesting in this passage in verse nine of First uh, Samuel twenty three. Here you have the syntactic of when knew that Saul, when David knew that Saul plotted against him, he said to Abiathar, "Bring the ephod." Now, in 1 Samuel 14, King Saul says the same thing, fetch the ephod. But, and here David said, O Lord God of Israel. So here you don't have, I don't think you have the, the Shaul formula, but you have the, the, the high priestly garments clearly in, an, in a, in a uh, uh, where he's making a consultation with God. But at any rate. Uh, you have the Shaul form in back in verse four. Just pardon me? FYI. You have the Shaul form back in verse four. So yes. it's possible that you keep it there because it's that's like a good multiple. point. It's narrative, anyway. wow, consecutive narrative, yeah. But uh, but at any rate, he asks, "Will will he deliver into his hand? Will Saul come down?" It's where he asks two questions, and the Lord said he will come down. He only answers the second question, and so David goes on and re-asks the first one. Well, will we deliver him in? Yeah, they will. And so David, very wisely, circumspectly, diplomatically, gets out of dodge, and and uh, so. Those are just four of the, there's some of the more instructive where the, the narrative is fleshed out enough that you get a real good, a pretty decent feel of what's going on. Now, uh, I, I, we're, we're a little over time. I, let me just say two questions. Number one, and this is a big, important question. And I think the narrative supplies the answer to the question. That is what happened to it. It's so important, important to Saul, so much so that if he can't get an answer, he goes to a witch. And David, we have it being used again and again. I, my contention is, and this is largely a function of the narrative as opposed to some propositional statement. But I, I would argue that number one, the Urim and Thummim was replaced by the court prophet. And uh, because that's exactly what happens. The Urim disappears, and now every king has a prophet assigned to him. And that prophet, by any standard, has the greater authority. And the king has to... Uh, and I think, number two, I think the king, the, the Urim was replaced by the court prophet. And I don't think it was a divine decision. It wasn't by, by, by reason of a divine decision, but by reason of human neglect, because the great distinction, think about it, between the Urim and the court prophet was that the Urim only worked 
if the king took the initiative. And when the king's heart was not interested in following Yahweh, God had to have a King Yahweh had to have a means of taking the initiative. And once he put that in place, and you have it certainly with Saul, I mean, Samuel puts him there and then guides him and so on. But with David and the other interesting, and I, I wouldn't go too far with this, but it is interesting to me. Uh, th that's that's my way of putting on the table an idea I can't prove, okay? But, but it's interesting to me that it's the Uriah Bathsheba incident that seems to be the turning point. David is no longer, number one, he certainly don't, didn't go fetch the Urim and ask if it was okay <laughs> if he commit those wickednesses. So I think there that, that, and it was a prophet whom God used. It was Nathan who God used to confront David. And after that, the, the court prophets really, they play the role and more that the Urim had played. And mm. so it's a, it's a prophet usually who is coming to a king and even giving him battle directions and so on. Uh, so uh, remember Elijah, how carefully he directs Ahab and so on. Board him. So that's what, what a, a, a godly king who genuinely wanted to represent Yahweh well and humbly, he would have been consulting the Urim. It disappeared. Now, as to how it worked, we don't know. I think the best explanation, I will say this, and I, I argue this strongly, that however it worked, it wasn't an impulse. And one of the most really interesting dynamics of the biblical narrative is that the Urim and Thummim is never, ever corrupted by the high priest. And that long line of priests, many of them ignoble and so on, and and Many of the Old Testament theologians make much of this, that it's kind of stunning. And they, they have various ideas and pretty deficient ideas. I think the reason that it was never manipulated wickedly or counterfeited and so on is because it was essentially non-counterfeitable, which is to say there was something supernatural about the exercise of the Urim and Thummim. We don't have enough in the record to know what it was, but it, 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 it left everybody with the absolute persuasion that King Yahweh had spoken. So I think, and 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 I think very possibly, this is my simple explanation. It's not mine, but it's the one that makes sense, best sense to me. Is that is that the king would approach the high priest, the high priest would face the tabernacle temple wherever he was, and he was approaching Yahweh even from afar, and he would he would articulate the request, the question. And very possibly God would communicate to him like he would a prophet. He would he would somehow uh, suggest to his mind or whatever the proper answer. And the priest would communicate that to the inquirer, usually the king, and perhaps open his urim, his kosein, and the 12 stones would supernaturally light that's what the, the rabbis remember, is there was some supernatural light that emanated. And they're perfect lights, you know, urim and thumim, so lights of perfection. So now you can know that Yahweh, King Yahweh has spoken, and we can proceed. So, and again, there's something going on here beyond an impulse. And my big argument for that is that passage in Judges, where they go back after two times where thousands of men are slaughtered, and they say, okay, what do you want us to do next? And he tells them to do the same thing, and they go do it, for heaven's sake. So they're, they're coming away with more than just a, you know, a pagan divination response. This is which always were totally 
non-explicit and Delphic and so on. This is something very, very objective. I, I don't know that we can know for sure. I don't matter if I say it more strongly. We, we don't know for sure exactly how they happen, how they work. But I would say that there was something supernatural and it left them with a absolutely clear understanding of what Yahweh had said. It's not an, just some sort of nebulous, uh, you know, non-specific impulse or so. Now, one other thing in conclusion. And then anything you want to talk about, I've already used up too much time. But I would say, again, I want to say that what's really at stake and the reason that Urim and Thummim is a, an oracle and a subject really worth tracing and thinking about is, as I say, because in the moment of the where, where, where the Urim and Thummim was utilized, the whole theocratic structure just crystallized perfectly. Because you've got King Yahweh, and they are dependent upon him, and he has established that only through the priestly caste are you to approach him. Even the king can't abandon that. We know that the king can't go ask Uzziah, ask Saul, you know, whether he can. And, and, and yet, by the same token, this human representative can approach Yahweh on behalf of the people. So you have a kind of this, this governmental structure, almost, where King Yahweh uh, administers his in every way, he, he he's, he's mediates himself to the people through the priest, but now the human king responsible to represent Yahweh on behalf of the people asks the question, and King Yahweh graciously gives the answer. So I think I, 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 I celebrate that notion, that, 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 if you don't mind that picture, because I do think it crystallizes and makes very, very real the theocratic arrangement which is so much overlooked and without which you're simply not going to be able to trace the, the narrative of the old Testament. You know, it's so central. All right. I think you asked me one question. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do have some questions though. I mean, I, I mean, I think this was so clearly laid out, which was tremendous. And I think the connection to the kingship of Yahweh is a, is an interesting one. Um, points of clarification. One, um, which I was surprised about, David gets the ephod, right? Um, he's inquiring of it a lot. Then we get to the passage where, you know, with the, the witch of Endor and whatever, and, you know, so it says, you know, Saul wasn't getting an answer through the Orium. Um, when does he get it back? Saul? Yeah. I don't think he does. Well, what I'm saying, because it says, yeah, because we, this is just a point of curiosity, because David's got it. 28, the point is it wasn't available. It wasn't available. Okay, okay, okay. Either by now he had he had a prophet, but uh, you know he. So he does. He's David still has the Orim and the Thummim at that time. He still has the Ephod. He's still in in the in. Okay. Um, the second thing is that Mary is what makes that whole business at David's death so fascinating. When Abiathar goes over to Adonijah, you know, and, and uh, sides with Adonijah against Abs uh, uh, with Abs against Adonijah against Sol uh, Solomon. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 So the Abiathar, he traveled with me through all, David, when he tells Solomon, you got to do something about Abiathar, he traveled with me through all of my, he was so loyal and so on, and of course, brought him the ephod, but he doesn't end so well, you know. But. Interesting. Um, the, the point from that story that I took away was Nob equals Mount Scopus, which I had never made that connection before. I'm not sure why. I spent a, several years of my life on Mount Scopus, and so now I'm going to read it differently. But anyway, that was a, that was a side note. Um the second thing I had, because you mentioned before, like maybe the high priest has the ephod on, he goes before 
um, temple or what have you, right? And then then he opens it up, the Hossein, and he's able to, to look at it. When David says, bring the ephod, do you think it has to be on the priest or can it be just solo? It's got to, it's got to be on the priest. So it has to be, it can't just be Saul says, I don't need the priest, bring the ephod. It has to be on the priest. I mean, that would be counter, that would be comparable in my mind to Saul intruding, you know, first Samuel 14 into the, into the high priestly role, you know, it got yeah. So it, reasons, a lot of good reasons why God maintained that absolute distinction between priest and king, you know, and so, and it, like I say, kind of crystallizes there, you know, you need both of them, but each plays his own role. And, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of, I asked just because I think that's interesting that if it, in order for the Orim and the Thummim to work, it has to be on the high priest. That's something interesting. Um, and then, I mean, the, the last, so I think you, you draw a pretty big distinction between the sacred lots and the Orim and the Thummim. Um, how, and you talk about kind of the Orim and the Thummim begin to be, you know, not used and then the separation of the monarchy and then it kind of falls out, which makes sense. Sacred lots, do you think they keep in use or? They do. Now I'm trying to think. You've got the yearly uh, Day of Atonement. Uh, I'm trying to think of narratives where they, later on they don't seem to be i think the prophet eclipses almost everything obviously mm. prophet's gonna mm -hmm. stick his nose in wherever he wants you know i think acts two is the sacred lot i think that's what's involved with the choice of matthias because god spoke you know and and uh you're still on old testament ground there as it were like for 20 minutes you know but it's just before but uh so yeah, I, I I think the sacred lot remains a, uh, a, a a phenomenon in the in in the life of the you know up until of course the 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 departure of the glory cloud. Then all this goes up in smoke. Thank you, Dr. Bookman, for your time uh, today to walk us through this. I think it was tremendous. Um, just walking us through the passages, giving us a sense of how, how if it's connected to what we know about archaeology and, and divination at the time or not, something different, what the rabbis thought about it. So I think very instructive just in general. So thank you for your time. Uh, we really appreciate it. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.